appears as though the thought should end there with the word amen, but it doesn't. So we're going to read the few verses that follow what we've just read there. We're actually going to camp out there for the next couple of weeks. And in doing so, we are going to continue exploring some of the themes that Austin set the foundation for last week. I hate to say it, but that's what we're going to do. Last week's gospel text ended with these words. Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money, money, money. I was going to sing that song, but I'll refrain. There are certain topics of conversation that we are taught from a young age to avoid in polite company, right? What are those? I'm thinking of two specifically, politics and religion. Politics and I think I heard religion. If not, I just gave you the answer. Politics and religion. These are probably the two most obvious. I want to ask you to raise your hand if you have been thrust into a heated debate on one of those topics the moment you sit down to enjoy a Thanksgiving meal with your family. The hands are going up anyway. So I, I think we all have been, and to be honest, I actually think that conversation on those topics can be worthwhile and beneficial depending on the context. But we are taught that those are subjects that we should try to avoid in polite company. There's another one, though, that is off limits. You've probably guessed where I'm going at this point. That is the topic of money. We're taught not to probe into another person's personal finances. Taught from a young age, not, and probably rightfully so, not to ask about a coworker's salary. That's not a great way to make friends at work. It's, it's not something you want to wade into for an initial conversation you have with somebody you've just met. That, that's actually a lesson I learned late in life. This is a bit embarrassing, um, but I'll tell this story as a reminder that it's possible to grow and to learn and to become more mature. Nanette loves to tell the story. She just walked into the room, but she loves to tell the story about our first official date. It occurred just down the street, not too many blocks from here, and it was a lovely time. I have to say that. Um, but seriously, you know those conversations where it's been hours, but it feels like only a few short moments have passed. And in the midst of that lovely conversation, I decide, you know, I think this is a great time. I'm just going to go for it. So first date. Now, I, I, I do want to mention that we had known each other for years. We had been friends for several years, so this wasn't the very first conversation we had had. I'm not an absolute monster, just a partial monster. First official date, and I am thinking, this is a great time to ask very pointedly how much personal debt she has. <laughs> I know. I was there. <laughs> it is shocking to me that she agreed to a second date, but she did. I was staying with a friend. I didn't live here at the time. I was staying with a friend, and I went back to his apartment and sort of rehashed the date, and I 
included that detail. Why not? And he lost it. What are, what are you thinking? You don't ask those sorts of questions, especially not on a first date if you hope to have a second date. We are taught from a young age to avoid those conversations, but our scriptures rarely shy away from conversations surrounding issues of finance. In fact, it's often been noted that Jesus himself addresses issues surrounding economics perhaps more than any other single social issue. I think it's really important for us to return to these conversations time and again because we are always going to have to wrestle with how are we supposed to approach finances as followers of Jesus. We are always going to consume goods. We will always have, you know, those very basic needs that money helps address because my guess is that we aren't going to return to a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, at least not exclusively, at least not all of us. I would be a terrible hunter and gatherer. So we always must consider how, how can I reorient my life and my interaction with, mo- with money so that I can live in a way that is increasingly consistent with the values of the kingdom of God. So to consider this, I want to turn our attention today to this morning's New Testament text, which we have started reading in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is where we're going to be for the next two weeks, camping out in these three verses, beginning in verse 17 where we left off. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So this is all right at the end of Paul's instructions for Timothy as he's warning him of and trying to help him figure out how to deal with the false teachers in the church in Ephesus who were really beginning to tear things apart. The placement, though, of what we have just read, verses 17 through 19, honestly seems a bit awkward. Our scripture reading that Steve led us through ended in verse 16 with the word, Amen. That's supposed to be the end, right? But as preachers are known to do, there is always more to be said. It just can't be helped. And so the argument continues. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age. So right at the end of his instructions to Timothy, the conversation turns again to the issue of wealth. Now, when it comes to ethical discussions centered around both personal and social economics, I think it's important for us to recognize that our scriptures are not monophonic. There there is a, a lot of nuance, a lot of... As the Bible addresses economic issues, we find incredible unity at times, but at other times we find what appears to be perplexing diversity. A diversity that maybe acknowledges the vast differences in our personal situations. So we could think about it 
like this. On one hand, in a place, a letter like the one Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, we see Paul really spending a lot of time hammering down on those who subjugate and oppress for their personal benefit. And as we read texts like that, it's possible to reach the conclusion, well, the problem is money itself. So if I am going to avoid those temptations, the only course of action for me is to get rid of it all, to take a vow of poverty, to commit to a completely ascetic lifestyle and and never enjoy any physical, temporal pleasures that money might make possible. As though the only way forward for Christians is to flatten out all differences in our economic positions. But our scriptures give voice to a bit more tension than that. There's, There's more nuance. On one hand, we see Paul, who who really hammers down on some of those abuses. He also presumably benefits from those who are well off in the various churches. We see in that short letter that he writes to Philemon, he apparently expects, he, he writes it from prison, but he apparently expects to get released any day now. And so he writes and says, look, I'm about to get out of this place and I'm coming to your place, so prepare the guest room for me. I am prepared to enjoy your hospitality. Or we might think of the hosts of those earliest churches that Paul starts scattered around the Greco-Roman world, uh, which often met in the homes of those who at least had some degree of financial freedom and, and owned some property, and it appears as though the church really benefits from those blessings. Of course, we could also look at the life of Jesus as an itinerant preacher traveling around with no place to lay his head, as it were, but receiving hospitality and enjoying hospitality from those who had means. So there is this tension that we exist in. And to be sure, as Austin clearly laid out for us last week, and as we routinely consider the story that is told throughout our scriptures, including the development of a theology of the cross, but really the entire story from beginning to end, we, we see it in the prophetic tradition and the emphasis on justice, and that emphasis that develops throughout the Old Testament. We also find that emphasis in the writings of Paul. But from beginning to end, we find a consistent picture of a God who champions the cause of the poor. We read a portion of that Magnificat from Mary, the mother of Jesus, last week. A God who champions the cause of the poor, and as his people, as a result, we too are invited, we are called to identify with and offer a place of belonging for those who experience great need. So this is the tension that we find. And as it always is and always has been, I I think personal wealth involves incredibly complex issues. There isn't necessarily an easy, one-size-fits-all approach to how we, I, I think there are principles that we are all striving for, but there's not an easy path that we all take, like, okay, I'm going to get rid of everything and I'm going to take a vow of poverty, and move into the monastery. 
For some of you, maybe that is the case. And if so, there's a part of me that's jealous. Enjoy life in the monastery if you choose to take that path. But most of us find ourselves living in the complexities of life in this world, figuring out what am I going to do with the money that I have been blessed with? How am I going to continue to move into deeper levels of faithfulness as I follow Jesus? And I think Paul, in this final section in 1 Timothy, at least offers us a place to begin. So, the previous section, what came right before our scripture reading in chapter 6, we find Paul wrapping up these instructions to Timothy, warning about the false teachers who were wreaking havoc in the church in Ephesus. And a big part of the problem that Paul has identified is the greed that is prompting the false teachers. And so, as Paul makes this final appeal in chapter 6, he stresses the dangers that exist for those who desire, who are constantly striving for nothing more than increasing their wealth. So that's one group, those who are striving and always working to increase wealth. That's one temptation. But he also goes on in the text we're looking at to acknowledge that there are also those who already have wealth. And his instruction to that group isn't get rid of it all. I think it's difficult to read Paul's words here and assume that he calls all Christians to abandon all personal property altogether. However, at the very least, this is a call to be cognizant of the unique dangers wealth presents when it comes to our faith. Which, by the way... This is a warning for all of us. I know it is really easy to play the comparison game, and well, I'm not as financially as comfortable as that individual over there, so this is really something for them to hear, not me, and I, I can sort of check out at this point. But by historical measures, and even by today's standards, if we take a global view, many in this room have incredible amounts of wealth, and experience and enjoy comforts that the vast majority of humans that have lived in the history of our universe simply did not enjoy. So this is as much a warning for me as it is for my neighbor that I might compare myself to in order to shift the burden of the text to somebody else. So as for those who are already rich in this present age, be careful. Be intentional. Approach your finances with care. And approach your finances with care not because you're incessantly trying to increase your net worth, but approach your finances with care so that you might be positioned to incessantly be shaped into the image of our Lord. Our Lord who, in response to the rich man in Matthew 19 who leaves that interaction with Jesus dejected, unable to bear the weight of what Jesus says. And Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23 and says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He goes on, what is impossible 
for man is possible with God. But the point remains that there are unique difficulties that our attachment to wealth creates in a pursuit of following Jesus. So to combat that temptation, to resist that pull, perhaps Paul offers these instructions. For those who are wealthy in this present age, number one, don't be haughty. It seems rather simple, but sometimes the simplest reminders are maybe the most necessary. In this life, the complexities of a global economy, there will be disparity in our financial positions. If you find yourself in a place of wealth at a bare minimum, a wonderful place to begin for Paul is to start by resisting the pride that is so often connected to wealth. Paul says, don't be haughty. Your financial position is sort of an arbitrary fact about you. It doesn't have that much meaning. It certainly isn't something that should set you apart. Definitely not something to set you above others. And that phrase, in this present age, I think is a subtle reminder from Paul that wealth that is accumulated in this present age ultimately doesn't have a whole lot of meaning because it's not going to be taken into the age to come. Richness in the kingdom of God is understood in a fundamentally different way. This is something that we're going to explore in more depth next week. But that doesn't erase the fact that in this age, there will be some who have wealth. So first of all, Paul says, don't be haughty. Second, consider where your true hope lies. Take inventory, where is my hope? Is my hope in the security that my bank account provides, or is my hope somewhere else? Charge the rich not to be haughty, we continue, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Admittedly, this requires a drastic recalibration of what we are after in this life. What is that proverbial north star that is guiding everything we do? What do we want more than anything else? As Jesus has said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our hope is in possessions, wealth, the security that that offers, our lives are probably eventually going to be dominated by those concerns. As Jesus says, not, not only will you value those possessions and enjoy them, but eventually you're probably going to be mastered by them. It is so easy for that to begin to control every move and control every decision. All of life is run through that filter. And Jesus says you can't serve both of those masters. Seeming to suggest that the more engrossed we become in wealth, the more dominant that force becomes in our lives. Which is perhaps why he moves in the, the Sermon on the Mount right into the section on not being anxious about what we eat 
and what we wear. A life that is dominated by or wrapped up in a concern about possessions, it's very difficult to find joy and to find peace. In fact, anxiety just continues to increase, it seems. And again, this is not only a danger for those who have a lot, but there does seem to be a way in which the things we possess directly impacts or increases our cares and concerns in this world. Sure, sure on the surface, increased financial abundance can help promote comfort. That, it's true. It can lead to, lead to a certain kind of freedom that can be really nice, but if we aren't careful, in the end, it can have the opposite effect. It can actually be, become rather restricting and enslaving in its own right, gaining mastery over us. I thought what was going to free me from temporal concerns and anxieties has actually only increased them because the goalpost just continues to move. What would have been rather satisfying to me years ago simply no longer does the trick. I'm more worried about maintaining control of what I have acquired. There's a Jewish scholar who lived just before the time of Christ who put it like, the, the birth of Christ, who put it like this, the more possessions, the more care. The more possessions, the more care, or as the great 20th century philosopher Biggie Smalls, the notorious B.I.G. put it, mo money, mo problems. Somebody's been listening to that. I heard that. The more possessions, the more care. It's that old adage, that the more moving parts you have, the more that can go wrong. The more that can break, the more you have to be worried about maintaining. I, I think that's one of the real benefits in pursuing a life of simplicity. Back in verse 10 of this chapter, Paul warns that an obsession with wealth has a tendency to lead to a complete abandonment of faith. Increased wealth tends to require a lot of attention, a lot of our time and concern to maintain that level that we've achieved, a tendency to snatch away contentment with the simple pleasures in life. And so Paul warns in verse 10, through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Oscar Wilde famously said, in this world there are only two tragedies, one is not getting what you want, the other is getting it. Sometimes getting what we want can be rather destructive to our souls. If money and possessions are seen as the source of our hope, we will ultimately, I think we're going to be disappointed. It will be an incredibly exhausting path and in the end, as the author of Ecclesiastes stresses, it's sort of a futile game. We're going to come back and, and consider some of those words from Ecclesiastes next week. But I want to begin wrapping this up with some of the words of C.S. Lewis from probably his most popular work, Mere Christianity. 
he warned of this. He said, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. As Austin started the conversation last week, our baptism invites us to leave behind a life that hopes and trusts in our personal wealth. It's futile. It's, it's a never-ending game. It leaves you wanting more. So instead, a path forward. Paul has invited us, put your hope in the God who satisfies you with good, the God who provides gifts for your enjoyment, not, not enjoyment that is understood strictly in terms of overindulgence with, with no limitations ever and a complete inability of self-denial, but gifts that are to be enjoyed, gifts that if approached appropriately, can draw our minds to our creator and sustainer and in so doing deepen our trust. So even our personal finances can be approached in a way that draws us into a posture of worship, that draws us into deeper levels of trust in the God who provides what our hands never could. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you to stand as we come to the table to receive a free gift, a gift that our financial position can do nothing to earn or gain. It is a gift we receive with open hands, a table at which we are all put on a level playing field as recipients of the gift of grace. We'll have two lines down this center aisle. If you're new or visiting, we invite you to join us at the table of our Lord to receive the gift of his life represented in this cup and in this bread to taste and see that the Lord is good. We invite you to this table. Two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, there will be somebody up here to speak the words over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And take the elements on your own, return to your seat. By way of invitation, I want to say a prayer for us. Lord Jesus, our hope is in you. We once again center our hearts and our minds in you. invite you to continue shaping us into your image. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to share this meal 
that our sinful bodies may be made clean by your body and our souls washed through your most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in you and you in us. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?